This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Matt Hesse. Now, Matt is an Army veteran entrepreneur, and the founder of the University of Health and Performance. So we discuss a host of topics from his early life bull riding, his journey into the military, creating multiple GNC supplement franchises, addressing the top of transition that so many people struggle with, the creation of the University of Health and Performance, educating veterans to become coaches, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Matt Hesse. Enjoy. All right. Well, Matt, I want to say firstly, thank you for your flexibility. I've had to do a bunch of traveling. I know you've had conflicts as well. So it's taken us a few weeks to make this happen. But I want to start by welcoming you to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Ah, I'm super happy to be here, James. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you. And uh, we adapt and overcame. We got here. Absolutely. So we were connected by a mutual friend, John Doolittle. So as an icebreaker, how did you meet John? Oh, man. Everyone knows John. Um, there are probably a thousand different ways I could have met him. I believe 
I met him at uh, the H2F symposium a few years ago uh, at Tradoc. Um, John, uh, as you probably know, was was one of the first, if not the first, director at POTIF um, after he uh, left the military or just as he was leaving the military. Uh, and so he's been, you know, encapsulated in that whole world of, of HP. Um, and he and I started chatting and pretty soon we we're having, having a couple of beers. And then uh, uh, we became friends and he's been out to see us at the university uh, numerous times. And he's just a heck of a good dude. He really is. Absolutely. All right. Well, then let's get to the very beginning of your story. I want to ask where you are, but that kind of ties into the very end of it. So starting at the beginning, tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Uh, Sure. So I think my mom and dad were having sex on this. No, I'm just, I'm not going to start. <laughs> you can, if you want, it might be perfect. We never know. <laughs> way back, way back. Um, I was born in uh, Nebraska. Um, my, my, my parents uh, met in right after college and um, my dad was uh grew up in a farm town in, in Nebraska. And so I grew up on a farm um, in Nebraska and had uh, about uh, eight years there as a kid Um turning wrenches on, on tractors and, you know, just the farm life. Uh, sadly, my parents divorced, um, early in my life, uh, at age eight. And I moved, um, to Wyoming, uh, to take up bull riding and, um, and, uh, went back to Nebraska a lot to see my dad, but, but really, um, pretty much a, a separated parents, uh, by the, by age eight. And, um, I have three brothers and those brothers all came with me and one by one, they just trickled back to my, to my dad and back where we grew up. And I stayed with my mom all the way uh, through until I left for basic training. So what did that dynamic have on, did the effect have on you when you were younger? Obviously you're working with a lot of people now that have transitioned. We all are starting to understand as men and women in uniform that before we put the uniform on is also an important part of our mental health story. So what are some of the ahas now when you look back? Well, you're going to go straight to it, James. All right. Um, yeah. So, so I now have the benefit of looking back on my journey, and and I think, um, and I know having put you know nearly a thousand veterans through my program now that that the journey for service really starts at childhood, and and you're often called to serve um, from from situations as children where maybe you couldn't serve yourself, but you don't want other kids or other people to feel the way you felt, um, and tr- you know trauma um, in our lives, uh, both as children. And then again, repeating itself through military service becomes safe and comfortable and normal. Um, and also wanting to help others not experience it becomes part of the DNA of who you are. And so if you're built to serve from a a young age, um, I think that's why a lot of us have a tough time transitioning into our new lives as civilians, um, taking that uniform off may seem like a, a weight coming off, um, for some, uh, but I actually think that it's more debilitating than, than, you know, maybe not in your head, but in your heart. Um, and so, um, I, I, I've pretty firmly believe now that loss to purpose is the biggest, um, challenge in transition and identification of who you are and, and why you want to serve in the first place may open a Pandora's box inside of you that you're not ready to open sometimes, but it's the key to unlocking the direction that you want in your life, because, if you're made to serve, you've got to find a way to do that or you'll feel lost. So what do you identify within yours? I mean, for example, I kind of unwrap mine now and my parents got divorced when I was kind of late teens. So 
I had this perception that, well, they're not divorced. I'm almost a man now. My parents are going to be married forever. And then there was this nuclear explosion and I realized, oh, there's a lot of pipe. My childhood actually was completely wrong the way I, I perceived it. So you you have this divorce when you're younger. You find you or yourself and your siblings kind of filtering back to your dad. You know, what were the pros and cons of that vulnerable child back then? Yeah, again, benefit of hindsight. Um, I had a terribly traumatic childhood. Um, I think, again, trauma of all kinds is prevalent in in our population um, and the kids who are, are now serving and have served. Um, if they look back in their childhood, it's it's pretty easy to trace back how this this beginning kernel of of wanting to be somebody who mattered, both to help others and to protect yourself. Um, mine mine started at, at seven years old. Um, I won't go into the kind of abuse that it was, but it was very bad, um, uh, so bad that it was compartmentalized until I was about thirty. Um, meaning I, I had no access to the memories. Um, military service layers more on top. And, and by the time I, I started to, to peel it all back, uh, there was definitely signs in along the way of, of this kind of trauma, um, having, having been part of my life, but, um, part of the, I think a human beings ability to compartmentalize. And we're certainly taught that in service. How do you, how do you compartmentalize the, the traumatic things around you so that you can move forward and, and finish the job, um, that skill becomes somewhat somewhat of a detriment um, to someone who's trying to uh, come out of of the um, unconscious behaviors that they're that they continue to display because the unconscious behaviors are are destroying their lives. Um, and part of part of the wiring that's created at the at the time of trauma, especially pre, 16 years old, where you're still building your wiring and framework for operations within your body. Um, the, the, when that framework becomes, when a, when a wire goes this way, instead of that way, um, you, you literally operate on a different system. And I, I believe that that system predominantly is fear. Um, and fear, fear is, there's nothing wrong with fear. Um, it can be an incredible tool, uh, to, to motivate and drive, uh, in fact, a lot of successful people are successful because of the fear that they have inside of them, but it can also destroy your life in many ways. Um, and, and most often when you combine fear and what is common in, in trauma children is a lack of self-love um, because when you're traumatized as a child, um, I don't understand why this happens, but usually you blame yourself for it. Um, and when you blame yourself for that, you go through your whole life in some ways, despising who you are. Um, and it's very easy to cover that up with, I feel good from helping other people. Um, and that, that mechanism of I'm going to help other people so that I don't feel bad inside about myself. And that's not a conscious thing. We don't decide that we just do it. It's part of our wiring system. And so a lot of our work here, uh, my work now is about helping service members understand how to look back in their past, map out their, their, what I call origin story, who you are, where you came from, why you chose to serve, how you continue to serve now, um, all the sad memories, all the good memories. Um, and then in a map or a diagram, de-emphasizing consciously choosing to de-emphasize the things that are, that are bad behavior and trauma-based and emphasize the things in your life that you love and enjoy that make you feel good about who you are. Um, and so, you know, I, I think to get back to, to the question, 
Um, my, my fear, um, from having have happened, what happened to me was so bad that I compartmentalized it, but the mechanism of fear was, was very big part of who I was. And so I was very driven. Um, I've been incredibly successful in a lot of things because of that drive, but I was very sad, uh, inside, very angry. Um, and I didn't really understand it because I'm such a peaceful person in general. Um, and so I went on a, uh, a quest, I guess, to figure out why I torched every relationship that, that came to me, why I was so hungry for success. Cause I'm not, you know, I, I, I like nice things for, for what it does for the people around me, but I could care less about having nice things for me. Um, again, that would make sense. If you don't value yourself a whole lot, why would you care about what you have? Um, and so at about my mom died, uh, in a, uh, from a car accident when I was 36, and when she died, um, I had a full blown panic attack and I'd never had one. I had had the beginnings of them, like anxiety. I just didn't know what it was. I interpreted anxiety as energy. I got to get it out. I got to work out. I got to work harder in my business. Uh, and so I kept again, compartmentalized that anxiety for so long. Um, but once I figured out that the, uh, from the, once, once you have a panic attack, you'll know that's, that's actually what anxiety is. And it's really hard to come back from because it's such a debilitating, um, my mom died on a Friday. I was sitting in a board meeting, um, with my entire board on, uh, the company I had started and sold, um, on a Tuesday, you know, get back to work, just get through it. And, um, I, I, I noticed my chest feeling tight. I started getting tingling in my arm. Um, both my arms, actually, I couldn't breathe. And all of a sudden I was on the floor and I thought, I, I thought I was having a heart attack. I thought I was dying. Um, and, and so, you know, I didn't die, uh, obviously, but I, but I, uh, went home and was exhausted for a couple of days and going through the trauma, losing my mom. And I was laying in bed thinking about, um, you know, my, my mom and my childhood and all those things. Um, and I went to sleep and the next day I met with my mentor and I'm sitting at lunch with him telling him about, um, you know, how she passed and what happened. Uh, and while I'm talking about that, a, a game of like, I can almost describe it as like a movie or Tetris where things are falling into place. All of a sudden, all these images, um, from my childhood started just coming back. I started having like a full on, like, like I was, I was almost in two worlds. I'm having lunch and I'm also seeing all this stuff happening and I didn't know it, but I, I had started bawling at the table while I was talking to him and I was sort of like running two processors. I was still having a conversation, but I'm watching this horrific movie of all this trauma that happened to me as a child play out in my head. And, and, um, and I started to have another panic attack. <laughs> so um, anyway, uh, imagine losing your mom and then having um, seen a movie of your childhood uh, four days later where some unspeakable horrific things happened to you um, all happen all at once. And so I, I, I guess you'd, you would say, I, I, I didn't have a nervous breakdown. I had a epiphany and a, uh, a whole lot of, um, conscious trauma happen at one time. Um, and so, you know, I, I having looked back on my life, I could see all that stuff, um, clearly now, like, why didn't I see it then? Um, but 
when you when you're not ready to see things, your body doesn't let you. And I think that's what a lot of vets face in their lives um, when they come out of service. The frustration that's inside of them, the anger that builds, is the subconscious and conscious coming to collision with each other. Um, the conscious wants uh, the subconscious wants it out. The conscious doesn't want it out, and it it just it just um, creates a lot of frustration and. That frustration, honestly, I think leads often is what leads to suicide because you don't want to put that burden on other people um, because that burden is heavy. And, and again, if you're built to serve, why would you want to give bad things onto other people that don't deserve it? Um, and so I think that's why people suffer in silence and sometimes eventually, sadly, kill themselves. And so um, I guess to bring it full circle, my life is a Petri dish for um uh, creating, um, something good from the, the challenging things that happened to me, all of the, the ways that I've been poured into by people, mentors, and, um, uh, both in service and now sense, um, and wanting to, uh, build a faster way to get to happy self-love, um, purpose and success in life through the work that we're now doing. Well, firstly, I want to say thank you. I think this these are the vulnerable and extremely uncom uncomfortable conversations that um, people need to hear. Because one of the things that I believed, you know, like so many of us for a long, long time, is our mental health struggles begin when we're in uniform. You know, what you see in combat, what you see as a firefighter or a police officer. And then as I educate myself through listening to all these different people with all these different stories you start to realize we never talk about what happened before we put the uniform on. And then you hear people like Jake Clark from Save a Warrior say, I think, I forget that a, a huge percentage of people in uniform, their ACEs scores, their acute childhood experience score, I think the max is 15 and most of us are 12 to 15. And then I listen. I mean, 800 episodes now, the number of people that had sexual abuse, physical abuse, you know, addiction, all these things. And yet, you know, now you go to a counselor and you sit in front of someone and you say, oh, it must have been Fallujah. This is why you're going through it. Not the fact that you were, you know, preyed on as a seven-year-old child and that's never addressed. So I think it's so important for us to hear the philosophy that you have to look at the entire holistic human being from birth to present day. Yeah, no, you're, you're spot on. And, and I think what's also covering it up, James, is... There's a lot of really well-intended veteran nonprofits that are trying to raise money to help people, but they're doing it off the pity of service and nobody who served wants any pity from anybody. And so we've, we basically charged the 320 million people in, in our population who didn't serve um, up with this, oh my God, he's a broken veteran. I need to help him. And anybody who is that I know that has served, um, uh, is proud of their service. Even if they didn't like the service, they're really proud that they raised their hand and went. Um, and so now uh, we've got to re-educate civilians that we don't want any pity from you. We don't want anything from you on like nothing um, other than potentially opportunities, the same as anybody else would get them. And don't stigmatize me like I'm a broken veteran because I'm actually purpose built. I know how to lead. Um, I'm a team. I'm a teammate. I, I, I'm a good con contributing member to society and you should want me on your team because of that, not because you feel sorry for me. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. So that's, a, that's a bigger, a bigger battle to fight. Um, but it's, it's, it's going to be an important one in the future if we want kids to want to serve our country. hundred percent. Well, going back to your childhood for a little bit, not the, the stuff that we don't want to discuss, but 
bull riding. I had a, a guest on, Curtis Anderson, who's actually a Canadian cowboy, and he... It wasn't actually a fall. It was the way the bull went back and forth. He ended up hitting its head when he was thrown forward and had a, a horrendous TBI. He went from literally barely being able to swallow to now years later, he's working on, on running and ice skating again because he was a hockey player too. Um, so talk to me about that sport, your experiences, and if you had any of the, the TBI element that is also another kind of elephant in the room in the mental health conversation. Yeah. Um, so I, I actually was a wrestler, um, uh, as well. And I had a, a broken neck from that, uh, in addition to a compound fracture fracture in my, in my arm from bull riding, um, several, several, um, concussions. So I'm probably, uh, more bruised and battered in my head than I remember than I, than I remember from that as well. Uh, but I mean, I, I'm like a lot of service members. I'm an adrenaline junkie. I love doing fun shit that, that is like, uh, pushing my own, you know, boundaries. I, I believe that fear again, uh, and overcoming it, uh, puts you on a high and makes you, makes you want to do awesome stuff. And so I find myself and when I was younger, I have kids now, so I'm not nearly as crazy as I was then, but I find myself wanting to do that kind of stuff. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, as kids, you don't think about those as like debilitating injuries. Even my broken neck, I was, I was wrestling again within a year and a half, not, not competitively anymore, but, um, I, I still, you know, I just didn't think I was, you know, now I wouldn't, wouldn't dare. I'll, I'll do jujitsu a little bit, but, um, I wouldn't dare get in, into competing because I would, I'd be like, ah, I don't care. I'll break my neck. I want to win. Um, so, uh, but yeah, I think, I think that, that all of those things, again, trauma childhoods create risky people with risky behaviors, risky behaviors, create more damage, more damage creates different wiring system. And sometimes, um, unfortunately those risky behaviors then lead to, you know, what I would call, you know, self-cutting self mutilate mutilation, not, not, not necessarily cutting with a knife, but like mutilating yourself from a inside you, you want to suffer because you feel so shitty inside you. Like I deserve to suffer. Um, masochist kind of uh, mindset um, gives you some comfort. And um, if people out there are listening to that, uh, to this, I, I, I want to say that, that just because it's safe and comfortable to you, because you've been around it your whole life, doesn't mean that it needs to be a part of your future. Um, there is an absolute path out of that feeling. Um, uh, the journey to self-love when you've, when you've hated yourself for 20 years is, is, or 30 years is, is not a, an easy one, but you said the word earlier, vulnerability is the beginning of that journey, being able to be vulnerable to somebody else, just to, to share your burdens and let them, let them out. Um, uh, one of our psychologists here says the things that you let out don't come back in the same way. Um, and, and meaning once you hear yourself say them, so the subconscious may get courage and the conscious may let it out. Once it comes out, it's part of your conscious operating system. Uh, and then you can do something about it. And so just getting it out and, and, and sharing it is a really important part of that journey. So staying on the, uh, the, the risky era behavior, talk to me about your career aspirations when you were younger and then how a boxing match led you into the military. Um, you know, I, 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 when I was, my parents divorced and my, my brothers all left and I was my mom, uh, I was in this sort of caregiver type of thing at, at, you know, 10 years old, which is, you know, the wrong 
thing for a kid to be doing at 10 years old. Um, but it was who I was because of what happened to me. Um, I, I'd always been a, a sensitive kid that wanted other people to be okay. Um, I was never the biggest kid, but I was always the kid that would take a fight for somebody else. Um, and I think that, that I continued that journey through my whole youth with my mom and I just always took care of her. And I think that, um, that the journey through taking care of her, um, it created, uh, this sort of like, I don't care what happens to me as long as she's okay. Um, and then, you know, going into the military, um, happened because, I was, uh, I'd gotten into some trouble, um, and I was doing, um, community service or something. I can't remember what it was. And I was on, on my lunch break, walking around a Walmart store, actually back then it was called Pomida, I think. Um, and I saw a soldier. Um, and I think again, subconscious is so power and pe powerful in people. I had probably watched a movie or something. Anyway, I was curious. I started following him around. Um, and you know what happens when you follow a recruiter around the recruiter starts following you around. Um, <laughs> so I, 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 uh, I was in the pellet gun aisle looking for some pellets for my pellet gun. Uh, like all 14 year old kids should be doing, or, uh, yeah, 16 year old kids should be doing. Um, and, um, he was, uh, came in, came up to me. He was like, Hey son, how old are you? And I was like, I was like, uh, I'm 16, just about to turn 17. And he said, he said, really? And we started chatting and he started telling me about his golden gloves, boxing, uh, days and, and uh, he's like, why don't you come by the armory on uh, after school next week and, and we'll, we'll box a little bit. And so I did. Um, and then we started boxing every week. And at the stroke of 17, he says, hey, have you ever thought about going in the military? And um, I, then, I, I now know I was being handled. I, uh, <laughs> but that being said, he, he, uh, I asked my mom. She said no. Um, I asked her again every day until she said yes. Uh, and so I went, I went into the army as a split up. Um, so I went to basic training the summer of my junior year, um, came back from my senior year, uh, broke my neck wrestling and snapped my arm riding bulls. Um, and so when basic training time came around or when AIT time came around, um, to go to my individual training and then, you know, go off to my, my, um, permanent station, I, I, uh, was injured, um, and, thought, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to go. And I called the recruiter and he's like, no, no, you're, you signed a contract. You're going. And so I was like, all right, screw it. I really liked basic training. I did. I was the honor graduate in my class at 17. I, I, I thrived in it, but I just, you know, I'd hit 18 years old and started to like, you know, there were girls around and there was, there was more bulls to ride. And I was just sort of like, um, uh, but I, I went, it was the best thing that I ever did. Um, it changed my life in so many ways. I didn't have a, a, a dad, uh, in quotes growing up because I was with my mom and I'd see my dad, you know, one week a year or something. Uh, and I really didn't want him in my life. Um, because my mom was, was everything to me and I was taking care of her. And I guess he was the enemy a little bit. Um, looking back on it now, he was, he was just trying to be a good dad. But, um, so I, I, uh, I went off to basic training and, and then, um, um, about, uh, I would say, or after AIT, I'm sorry, I would say about two weeks after AIT ended, I'm on leave, um, my mom gets in a horrific car accident and um, she's going 80 miles around, miles an hour around a corner with gravel on it um, on a highway. They'd done construction. Um, it was during the Sturgis car rally or bike rally, and there was a bunch of bikers camping on the side of the, of the road. 
and uh, her car, which was called an Eagle Talon, um, was doing like somersaults through their campground. Um, no, no bikers got hurt, but she was she was wearing a seatbelt. The seatbelt actually ripped, um, and she was ejected. I think I got a call at like two o'clock in the morning, um, and uh, they had told me that she was being. She was being uh, airlifted to a uh, hospital. And so I got in my car and drove about 120 miles an hour for about eight hours and got there. And, and um, <clears throat> anyway, she, she, um, she made it through surgery, uh, but she was a quadriplegic and, you know, just, she spent probably, I would say, five years trying to survive, but eventually died. I talk about that all the time. I don't know why it's so emotional this time, but um, yeah, she, um, you know, you're, when you're, when a parent dies, you know, the, the weight there, I can only explain it relative, you know, relative to either, um, you know, somebody dying in combat or, or uh, an, a, a pet dying or something, the weight of each of those are different. When, the, when your parent dies, especially someone that you've taken over the care of and tried to, to save, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a deeper, longer injury. Um, it just is very different. And so I went through uh, all of what we talked about, you know, the stages of her death and grief, plus um, all of what I had realized happened to me as a child. And then linking those two things together, a lot of the things that happened to me happened to me because of her. Um, you know, just uh, inviting dangerous people into our home as when I was an eight, 10 year old kid, um, you know, every kind of abuse imaginable. Um, and so, you know, the, the reconciliation of grieving someone at the same time that you're angry at them at the same time that you're processing all these things that happened to you, it was, it was a lot. Um, but, you know, I firmly believe that the things that, that were chosen, were chosen, you know, servant leaders are chosen, um, uh, and it's a gift in some ways to be given that kind of trauma because it allows perspective, um, and the ability to lever the empathy that, that you feel for others, um, into helping people. And, um, I guess, you know, the, the gift for me, uh, once I got through it was, um, I went from hating myself to loving myself, which was a pretty long journey. Um, and then from loving myself to, um, using the understanding that I had from what it felt like to hate myself and all the ways that I helped myself get to self-love. And then I wrote a book about all that and put that book. Um, and I've not published it yet for those of you who are going to ask for it. Um, but I, I took that book and, and turned it into curriculum. Uh, I hired PhDs and, and master's degree coaches from across the physical, um, intellectual, emotional, and, and spiritual values uh, modalities. And we worked for a year and a half um, and built um, a, a curriculum to help people on that same journey um, accelerate through the journey um, uh, in, into the journey, I would say, actually. Um, and then uh, like you do, we bought 500 acres in in, uh, in the Ozark Mountains on a beautiful river and, and built a an amazing retreat for service members to come and and learn about themselves and and grow and uh, become coaches so that they can leverage that power of empathy to serve uh, in a new, in a new uniform.
I jumped over a lot of stuff there. You're going to make me go back, I know. But. I am, I am. <laughs> but first, you know, again, the fact that you had that emotional response is, is what's needed because I've sat through a lot of kind of talks and mental health presentations and the PowerPoints and the statistics, you know, they, they do not resonate. But when you have someone and we'll hear about the amazing university you've created, but now people understand the origin story of that, the origin story of Save a Warrior, the origin story of so many people that have come on here. Once you have found your path and once that trauma has trauma, excuse me, that trauma has truly been processed, that becomes a superpower then. Because you can look someone in the eye and say, I know what you're going through. Not the same thing. There we go. It says leverage your superpower to serve others in the background. I wasn't even reading that. (laughs) Um, So, but this is just it, is that now you have the buy-in. As you and I know, if someone walks in in spandex and talks to a soldier or a firefighter, hey, we're going to do aerobics, going to prepare you for the battleground or the fireground, you're going to be like, get the fuck out of my fire station. (laughs) But if someone walks in and they happen to be British SAS and they tell a firefighter, hey, we're going to do a workout, you're going to be like, all right, where do we begin? Because there's that buy-in. And I feel that it's the same with the mental health. It doesn't mean that you had to have been crushed by trauma maybe you've been fortunate enough to have the tools where earlier on you were able to process it but if you haven't been honest and vulnerable about your own path you're never going to create connect with the people that need your help thousand percent right that's a really good point i hadn't thought about it that way i totally agree with you well, so we're going back, as I said, we would um, just for that time, your your army time is, is uh, interesting because it was four years just before 9-11. So to talk to me about your personal military experience. Yeah, um, I had a, a phenomenal experience um, uh, for the most part. Great leaders. I learned I learned how to be a leader in the military. I'd say I learned I learned the concepts of it. Um, I didn't I didn't get to become a leader in the military because I got out. Um, had I known a war was coming, I would definitely wouldn't have got out, gotten out. Um, at that time, I was full of rage and ready to serve. Um, uh, but you know the the con- my by contract, I think I, I think I did another two extra years in the reserves. Um, so I had a total of six years, I believe. Um, but the the um, you know the path out for me was well, the time in service was was good from a learning to beat the fundamentals of leadership, um, getting to watch good leaders. Um, I, I, I enlisted in, in the, um, as a, um, 13 Bravo and then reclassed as an 11 Bravo, um, partially because I had a really bad leader, um, and got just wanted to try something different. And I absolutely love the, um, the transition from that. Um, but I, I, I felt like I needed to, um, go to college and, you know, I think back then, especially the whole, like, pressure of you need to go to school, you need to go to college. And I had the GI bill and I was like, well, I'll go to college. Um, so I went to college, went back to Nebraska, um, patched things up with my dad, um, and understood a lot more about, um, why what happened to me happened, um, which he had nothing to do with, but, um, you know, understood more about my mom and, and their relationship. And, and now I have a very nice relationship with my dad. Um, uh, but with school, like any kid who's, you know, 22 or whatever I was going to college and, and, um, still was full of rage and, and, uh, on the inside and peace on the outside. So you can imagine what I did to the girls. Um, I was, I was, uh, very sweet until I got to the point of like, you know, 
um, sabotage because you don't want people to see that. And eventually if you get that intimate with somebody, they're going to see every bit of who you are. And so I take it all the way to the point of, of falling in love or, or whatever that was at, for a 20 some year old kid. And then I'd nuke, I'd nuke the situation and go to the next one. Um, and, um, you know, I didn't realize back then how bad that was, you know, how I was hurting people or I probably wouldn't have done that. Um, again, I think just lack of consciousness and understanding and, um, I've now got a three-year-old daughter who has absolutely like been sent to the earth to pay me back, um, <laughs> for all those things. Um, uh, she's, she's going to be a, a, a handful and her mom is beautiful. And, and so I'm, I'm just in for a bad situation of that, but, um, yeah, I just didn't understand it back then. And so I went to school, um, what set me on the path of my career was, I had that neck injury from wrestling and I wanted to collegiately wrestle. Um, and so I was, I was training and, and never really got to the place where I could. Um, but I was taking every supplement under the planet to try to get there. And I went to a uh, GNC nutrition store and there was a, a young guy in there at about 26. And he had a, he had, a, I'll never forget this guy. He had a Corvette outside that said, Mr. GNC on the license plate. And now back then I was like, oh, that's cool. And now I'm like, that's douchey. Um, but, um, <laughs> that was the eighties and nineties for you though. <laughs> um, but anyway, Mr. GNC gave me a job. He's like, he's like, Hey man, you want a job? And I was, you know, I was in good, really good shape from having been in the military and, and having been training to wrestle. And, and I'm like, I, I, my neck injury was still bad enough that I couldn't, um, I couldn't do anything else really like couldn't play sports in college. So I was like, yeah, sure. So I started working at this guy's store and through um, the process, again, you get myself in a position to serve. I had everything from, from 18 year old kids coming in saying, I want to get jacked so I can get chicks to old ladies who are going through menopause crying in my store. And I'm 22 years old, like hugging old ladies who are bawling their eyes out because their emotions are so jacked up. And I became like, like, um, it was like my utopia. I'd get out of school and I'd run to GNC and I'd go to work and they'd come in and I'd, I'd write diets. I'd research. I was talking to doctors all over the country. Like this person has this, and this person has this, what can I do? And, um, and so I, I fell in love with helping people through nutrition. Um, I was writing all of the diet programs, uh, and nutrition programs for the athletes at the university of Nebraska. Um, and, um, Bill Cornuskers, by the way. Um, and, um, I was delivering their supplements and inadvertently became so successful at, at a, at running GNC stores because I, because I was delivering supplements outside of the stores, GNC stores see an average of 30 to 45 customers a day. Maybe you sell them, you know, back then $30 worth of stuff. So maybe $1,200 a day. I was delivering like a thousand dollars a day extra of supplements to kids around school. And so this guy is like, dude, you're killing it. You just doubled my store sales. Uh, you want to like drop out of school and work for me full time? And I was like, nah, I'm going to get, I want to finish school. And, and, but I, what I was, what I did do was start watching him and learning how he was running that store. And then I started asking questions about how he got into that store. And then pretty soon I was like, I'm going to open my own store. Um, and so I, I worked weekends, uh, building houses, uh, nights at GNC, saved up 40 grand, uh, used my, federal benefits to get a loan and opened my own GNC store, um, near a college campus, hired all the athletes at the school to work there, uh, and did the exact same thing. And I replicated that model over and over for about six years and, and had about, I don't know, 20, 20 or so GNC stores, 
Um, and along the way, learned a ton of lessons. Um, I, I, I'll tell a quick one. I was running the, my GNC store, my third GNC store. Uh, I bought three within like 14 months and I had so much cash. I'm like, this is amazing. This is like the easiest thing ever. And, and, um, you know, I didn't really have any business background at all other than like being, I'd say creative and having like, you know, paper routes and lawn mowing jobs and shit like that. But, um, I, I, so I wasn't paying attention to the details I'd say. And one day this guy with the clipboard walks into my store and he's like, are you Matt? And I said, I am. And he said, um, he said, uh, you, you're not paying your taxes. And I said, oh yeah, I pay my income tax every single year. I said, I can show you my returns. And he's like, no, 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 you're not paying your sales tax. And I said, what's that? What do you mean sales tax? And he's like, give me your, give me your register tape. He pulls the tape out of the thing. He said, you see that number on the bottom that says 6.7%? That's not your money. That's my money. And I was like, ah. And he's like, you owe, you owe me some, some money. I said, oh, I get my check. But I said, how much, how much is it? And he said, $330,000. And I said, holy shit. Um, because I was like, you know, doubling down, opening stores, buying, I had a wakeboard boat and, and, and my, my version of the Mr. GNC douchey Corvette was a Hummer, um, uh, <laughs> didn't say Mr. GNC on it. Um, but I had a Hummer, which is totally douchey. Um, yeah, Mr. Hummer sorry. doesn't have quite the same, uh, context, especially if you drive in the wrong part of town. <laughs> yeah, that, that might've put me in a different, uh, different area of town. Uh, but anyway, so, uh, anyway, wakeboard boat went, Hummer went. That Matt paid his his uh, sales tax, and I learned a vi- valuable lesson about paying attention to details in business. Um, so anyway, fast forward a bit. Um, I moved to Va- I go to Vail skiing with a buddy, um, and uh, I had been moving around Kansas and Oklahoma and Colorado, opening GNC stores for like five or six years, and just burning hard. Um, and we went skiing, and and it was just like a picture perfect ski day, and there was it was spring break. There was girls everywhere. And he's like, dude, you want to move here? And I was like, yeah, I do. And, um, so I, I, we, we skied down the hill, literally skied down the hill, walked into the first real estate office we could find, uh, st- went look at houses, bought a house the next day, um, closed on it in 30 days. And we were living in Vail and I stayed up there for five years skiing, just him and I skiing and, you know, doing what guys do in, in ski towns. And, um, and uh, that that romance came to an end in 20, uh, 2009, 10, I guess. Not romance with the dude, romance with the ski town. Mr. Hummer. To <laughs> Mr. Hummer. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I got the itch to start like doing something different. I sold all my GNC stores um, um, partially because I started to, to develop products. Um, back, remember back to the days when I was in GNC calling researchers about things, ingredients, how to help people. Um, there was a, a, a researcher at the university of Wisconsin that had found, um, I had found because there was an oncology center next door and I used to get, um, cancer patients coming into my store all the time. And you want to talk about gut wrenching, um, trying to help people who have terminal cancer, uh, is just, a, a many people out there have been touched by cancer. I'm sure you understand what I'm saying, but, um, I'm, I'm now like, how do I help? So I, I started calling cancer researchers and there was an ingredient, um, called beta 3d glucan, which is actually a pretty popular ingredient now for, for immunity through the gut. Um, it's a really effective actually, uh, for the listeners out there who have either autoimmune issues or, or going through chemo, 
beta 3D glucan is a very, very good ingredient for helping to protect the cells and um, reduce inflammation that's driven from unhealthy guts. Um, and so anyway, um, that researcher called me and she said, I have a really, really interesting ingredient I want you to take a look at. And she had known I was working on a nutrition store and that I worked across sports nutrition, diet, um, and general health. And so she sent me all this literature and I was like, this is insane. And it's this ingredient called CLA, which has been now commercialized across a hundred different brands. Um, but I launched the first CLA product in the country, um, at GNC. Uh, and so I, I had a love of packaging and I built like this, this, I, I was sitting at dinner, um, and I was looking at this as a sushi place and that, and Voss water was sitting there. And I was like, you, why hasn't anybody made supplements nice looking? Like they're all in these little shitty brown bottles or plastic. They cost $50. And I used to hand people on the sales floor and hand people product and then I'd be telling them about it. And they're like, I, like, it does this and it does this. Like, oh, it's amazing. How much is it? And I'd say, you know, $40 and I'd hand it to them and, and they'd be like holding their, moving their hand up and down, like the weight of the product, like $40. And I was like, I could see that the, the, the discrepancy in their head was it doesn't feel like it's worth $40. And so when I started making supplements, I started doing it in, in glass heavy packaging where you could see the pills inside and then made the pills nicer looking. And, uh, but anyway, this, this lady gives me this literature, tons of clinical studies they have been doing on cancer, um, which is why I know her from cancer research. But the ingredient um, was was being studied in as a as a cancer ingredient. But it, all the cancer patients that were taking it were losing a ton of fat, um, specifically around the belly. And I was like, "That's crazy!" Because everybody that comes into the store says, "I want to lose weight," and then they touch their gut. And so I launched a product called Abcuts, um, and uh, it was a healthy CLA, uh, ALA, GLA, still still for sale at like Walmart and Costco and GNC, etc. Um, and it, it crushed it. It was, it just became like a really, really top selling product very quick. Um, again, fast success in another business. Um, and, um, and so I built a, a sports, a global sports nutrition and, and health company, um, over a period of about six years, um, pretty much focusing on technology, um, like ingredients and technology and packaging. Um, and I, I kind of sold that company in 2017, uh, to a fund in New York, um, uh, where I was living, um, actually. Uh, and, and that's the time I started putting my focus on, on the veteran space and how do we help, uh, service members thrive, um, after service through a variety of things, but largely through health and fitness. So I want to get to that transition, but just before we do, Thorne has been one of the sponsors of the show for a while. It's a company that I've used. And, you know, you, when you learn about the supplement industry, you have, the highest level of efficacy and certification and you know those kind of things and cleanliness but then you learn there's a lot of dark sides to a lot of these things that you will find totally. in some so you know you have a unique perspective talk to me about the best and the worst through your eyes with this incredible nutrition path you've been on oh well you nailed it there's you know the predominantly the sports nutrition world comes from bodybuilders you know, former bodybuilders who decide to either start brands or endorse brands. And, you know, let's be clear, those guys are largely juicing the shit out of themselves and they're not natural and supplements are not what are causing them to be what they are. Um, but I don't have any judgment over that. I don't care if people do that kind of thing. If you want to take steroids, take steroids. But, but my point was that what 
what's driving the category of sports nutrition largely um, uh, is former former bodybuilders who uh, who have a huge audience who they lever to buy their supplements um, when they become supplement CEOs. Um, and some of those CEOs have um, built pretty big companies and a lot of them have built like kind of fringe 20, 30, $50 million businesses that are not meaningful businesses. I'm not saying those are small businesses, but they're not professionalized. They're not doing clinic, tons of clinical research. They're not, um, um, and they're, they're more focused on muscle and muscle performance than they are in like human performance from a holistic perspective. Um, and so, you know, you mentioned Thorne, they're a great company. They do a lot of awesome things. Um, I've met the CEO a couple of times when I was in New York. Um, and, uh, there's just, you know, there's some companies that are doing it great. Some that are doing it, uh, less well. Um, we, we partner with uh, a bunch of those kinds of companies here because obviously we're building coaches who are going to go out into the world and, and recommend products. And so we want, we want the right kinds of companies representing themselves to our students. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a, a big underworld of very shady shit going on in the supplement space for sure. Yeah, I think it's it's important for people to understand what I try and do with the sponsors that come on here is just simply to say you're going to spend your 50 100 bucks anyway. Let's find out, you know, what's worth your, you know, your dollar is it is it effective? Is it actually giving you the nutrition it says on the packet? And for a lot of us in uniform, are you going to make sure you're not going to piss hot on some drug test as well? Because I've heard, you know, I think it was Jeff Nichols was telling a story how one of the, I forget what it was, one of the latest and greatest um, protein powders, people were like, oh my God, this shit's amazing. And they were having these great results. And it turns out they were putting androgens in the protein powder. And then when it came time to people say, oh, we should probably test those, they removed them. And everyone's like, where the hell are my gains? So, you know, when you hear some of that shadiness going on, Imagine if that was a profession where they were testing for that thing and now someone in uniform loses their job, you know, unknowingly because of the supplement they were taking. So it's a very important topic, I think, for us in uniform especially. Yeah, you're 100% right. Um, and it's hard if you don't know the space, you're trusting the, the companies and the people that are selling it. Um, you know, GNC has done a good job now of, of, you know, maybe not in the past, but now of like testing everything that comes into their stores so that they don't give a kid or a soldier. But, you know, there's, there's assholes out there, pardon my French, who are, who have, you know, there's some guys in jail right now. I remember Jack 3D, um, you know, the, the brand that was, it's still, it's still a brand actually, I think now. Um, but the, the documentation in the, in the court hearing, you, they, the Department of Defense sent them a, a notice that said your product, um, two soldiers have died or three soldiers have died um, from this product. Um, we need you to pull it from the market immediately along with the FDA. And these idiots turned around and sent a company-wide email out that said, um, we've got to get rid of all these products, wholesale them at half price. Um, uh, we need to get rid of them ASAP. Um, so imagine that they go to, they go and actually sell more of it. More people die and the FDA investigates, um, you know, they, they stayed out of prison for about a year, I think. Um, but the FDA investigates, and then they found that these guys were, were actually shipping drugs into the country through containers in China. And they have emails to the Chinese, uh, importer saying, please change the label from, uh, you know, uh, to daffodil and androgens to vitamin A or something. 
And so they were getting into country and putting these drugs into supplements and everybody's like you said, everybody's having these crazy results and they and then people start dying. Um, anyway, the, they took all their money, put them in, put them in prison and not long enough, but I think, I think they've been in prison for maybe they get 10 years or something. Um, but anyway, so that, that isn't to scare people and not use supplements because there are some great companies out there, but you know, do your research, do your homework, buy from reputable companies that have been around for a long time that have, you know, good trusted seals on their websites and that kind of stuff. Um, I'm not going to throw any names in, out there in terms of like the, co- the companies that are doing it the best, the companies that are doing it the worst, but I'll just say that there's plenty of companies that are not doing it the way they should be. Absolutely. You give me an idea though. Next time I sell cocaine, I'm going to put it in a glass jar so it feels heavier. Ah. Like, damn, is this only a gram? This feels amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I like you, James. <laughs> All right. Well, then talk to me about that. You've had this an amazing success in the supplement world. What makes you um, kind of decide to kind of like, take a left term and then create FitOps? Yeah. So, um, in 2017, I was, as I said, so I sold the company. Um, I, I was still working at the company, but I had sold uh, the company to a fund and I took, um, a couple million bucks and put it into a foundation to do research. Um, I had been hiring vets this whole time that I had GNC stores and at this company of a couple hundred employees. And I saw the same thing. And I, I'd met, I was, at that time, trying to mentor them and counsel them, but I didn't have the awareness now or, or the resources uh, now th- then to help them the way that I wished I could have. Um, but I saw the same struggle and had nothing to do with combat trauma. It had nothing to do. There, there's an adjustment period coming back from, from combat for sure. Uh, that is hard. And, you know, that's, that's a, a version of transition, I would say. Um, but you know, the, the number of soldiers who are service members who saw the kind of combat that would require um, or that would re- create results of, you know, I, I believe there's been a couple hundred thousand suicides since the global war on terror t- took off. We have what, seven, 7,078 or something uh, combat losses of life um, in that 20, same 20 year period, 7,000 in combat, 200,000 into suicide. So the numbers just don't really add up relative to like these people are killing themselves because they had such, they had seen such bad things in war. Um, and I knew firsthand because a lot of the guys that I, that I had working for me were, were citizen soldiers who hadn't been deployed and they were having the same challenges um, that, that the, the larger population would think that we all have. And so I knew it was something else. I didn't know then that it was lost of purpose. I thought that it was, um, uh, childhood trauma, honestly, because that was my journey. Um, uh, and so that's always where I would start, but I didn't, until I tied it all together, um, it fit ops, which was largely a research foundation, um, wasn't successful or as successful as the university we've created because it wasn't as holistically built. Um, the book that I wrote, which I started writing right after, right when the pandemic started, um, and finished, um, in early in mid 20, um, that tied everything together. It was all the exit interviews from all the roughly four or 500 students at that point who had gone through the program, listening to them. Um, but quite honestly, James, the first time that we held space, um, which is a event we do here on campus every other night, um, it truly looks like a cult. Um, it, we have a, we've carved a massive crater out of the earth and built seats uh, built seats into the around it and put this huge fire pit um, that's about eight feet by eight feet by eight feet um, in the middle of it. And then there's torches all around the top. 
Um, we're out in the middle of the Ozark Mountains in Arkansas. And if you look down from above, you'll see like eight torches and a huge fire in the middle with a bunch of guys all in black um, uh, at, in the middle, at, at, at night. Um, and if from the from the air, you'd be like, what the hell is going on down there? If you're on the ground, it's the exact opposite of what you'd think. It's it's men and women who have served um, telling their origin stories to the rest of the group. Um, and, you know, this kind of stuff goes on across all kinds of the nonprofit space. They bring people away and do retreats and talk about, you know, how you feel. And um, there's some good work being done. But I think that the work, um, sadly, um, well-intended, but sadly doesn't tie the the action steps into like, how, okay, now you, you've got some of this trauma out. You've talked about it. What are you going to do now? Um, and so that book was really about um, writing a strategy um, to identify who you are, uh, why you wanted to serve in the first place, all of your experiences uh, before and after, um, your passions, the things you're skilled at, all rolled together into a strategy for your life. And that's called The Purpose Blueprint. And that's what the book will be titled when I pu finally publish it. Um, but it's a strategy for people to, um, to get after life in a way that is actionable, meaningful, and will lead to incredible purpose. Uh, and I think that everybody just generally should be living a life of purpose and meaning that feels good. I don't think people should go to work and hate what they do. Um, that may seem altruistic to say that that's possible, but I believe that it is. Um, so that, that, that map, that blueprint, um, that is the curriculum here at the university, uh, is the center of everything that we do. Um, and within it is called think, train, feel, and lead. Think are your intellectual skills, uh, train are your physical skills, uh, uh, feel are your emotional awarenesses, um, and lead or your value systems. And so you build, you identify all your skills in all those areas. You, you overlay it with the things you're passionate about, and then you build a career strategy off of it. Um, and then we put it into action when you leave here. Well, I think you're spot on as well with the concept of loss of purpose. I don't know if you've read Sebastian Junger's Tribe before, but I mean, I think that nails it, you know, hits it on the head. And he's actually coming back on for, I think it's the third or fourth time in a couple of weeks. But um, that is what he found too. You know, there were people that were in Restrepo that when they were in combat were the happiest they'd been for a long time. And it was when they transitioned out and were basically in DMOB in Italy that they all started falling apart. And so when you have the first responder profession, it's the same. You know, you're in this tribe, you have the sense of purpose, you know, you're doing good in, in the world. And then one day the door closes behind you and your ID doesn't work anymore. And some fortunate people have already created other tribes in, you know, the next step. Um, I think John was actually one of them that, that actually already had things in place when he, when he kind of transitioned out, but a lot of people don't, you know, and then you have this distorted perception of your skill set, which especially in the fire service, most firefighters go teach at a fire academy. Well, you were a problem solver. You were calm under pressure. You work well in the team. You have leadership skills. You have problem solving skills. You have an amazing skill set. But the problem is you viewed the world through a myopic lens, which is, oh, I can only cut people out of cars and put fires out. No, you can do anything you want. You just have to be able to pull those blinkers off and actually realize that the world is your oyster and you can serve in a thousand other ways without wearing a uniform. Yeah. Yep. Spot on. Hundred percent right. Um, sooner we get that out to everybody, every everybody who's leaving the military and and the fire service and the fire department and EMS, we will be better off because those people will struggle less. 
they'll be more fulfilled. And those are our most talented asset in our population. There's no better part of our population than service-based people. Um, we need more of them and we need them to be happy and healthy so that they can help serve other people because that's what this world's all about. It's about building relationships and helping each other move forward. So you mentioned about kind of having this shift again during COVID. Um, I actually wrote my book during COVID too, so it was a good time to, to sit and write. Um, one thing that absolutely maddened me about the whole pandemic experience was the only real truth in the middle was that the healthier the human, the more chance there was of a good outcome from this virus. So we took a two-year window with a captive audience and could have made such incredible progress in the health of this nation. We could have empowered you know, local farms to grow clean food and meat. We could have changed the way we feed our children in schools and taken the soda machines out, et cetera, et cetera. What absolutely happened? Fucking nothing when it comes to that whole thing. So that leads me to my oh, next Don't part. get me started on that one, brother. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let, me, let me give you the mic for a sec. What, are, what is your perception? You come from the world of, of, of fitness, you're a military veteran, and you worked in nutrition for a long time. What was your experience before we get to the university? Oh, I, I had owned some gyms in, in New York and LA. Um, they were basically brand houses. Um, and it was basically, it was the concept was the holistic house with, um, uh, brand house, which had everything you could imagine, saunas, IVs, massage therapists, therapists, nutritionists, personal trainers. Um, and it was a members based gym, um, where you pay 500 bucks a month and you have access to all this stuff. And it was crushing it. It was in the middle of New York city. Um, the pandemic shut that down and I, I knew all my, all of our members there and, and it wasn't, I wasn't building a gym business. I was building a, a brand house to talk about, you know, test products in, you know, very actually not that it's similar to this university in terms of all of its assets and abilities to be able to test products, help companies tell their stories about their products through our population by supporting students that go through here with scholarships, things like that. Um, and anyway, so pandemic happens, you know, I'm, I remember my wife and I had just had our first son um, and we were living in New York city and we had been upstate at our house in Bedford, which is up just North of New York um, city. And we were, we were like, well, let's just go back out there. Um, Cause nobody really knew. And so, you know, my, my theory is um, whether you take, whether you call it Hitler, you call it COVID, you call anything where fear has captivated people and you use fear to drive, it goes back to the same thing we talked about before. Fear is an incredible, powerful tool. It's also an incredibly um, chaotic and, and destructive tool if used in the wrong way. Um, if you fear something, uh, you set your intention on that thing. Don't hit the tree. Don't hit the tree. Don't hit the tree. Fuck, how did I hit that tree? It's the only thing out here in 100 miles because you're focused on not hitting it. You're still focused on it. I think in COVID, all these assholes on the news got on there and started saying how dangerous it was before they really knew what it was. And then they were bought into that narrative, either because it was pushed on them to be bought into or because they believed it themselves or because it gave them power. I don't know why, but they basically created, created mass hip, uh, hypnosis where psychosis, mass psychosis thing it's called um, where everybody became so scared. And I'm not saying that COVID wasn't dangerous to a certain part of the population and that that population needed to be protected. But the reality of how bad they made it seem and the, the deterioration of mental health and financial health and a lot of other versions of health was absolutely not worth it. 
And somebody could look back and say, well, we didn't know. You, we knew probably 25% the way through COVID that it was not what they said it was, but they were their, their arrogance and, and BS of, I want, I want to be the, the, I like the control I have over these people. I'm just going to, I'm going to double down now. And then you got guys out there that are researchers that are well, you know, Joe, Joe Rogan's gotten hammered for this, but Joe's right. There was people out there that had validated research that was, that said, it's more dangerous to put people at home and not allow them to create community. I lived in California for about a six months during this the pandemic, and these these idiots had the beaches shut down. Like I just don't understand. And and to me, a common sense guy not I'm not well educated, but a common sense I think is something I'm pretty decent at. It just felt like it lacked complete common sense, and at the at the cost. The control of people came at the cost of everybody's mental health, um, and it destroyed people's lives. And I think it was uh, sorry you just you gave me the mic and I took it. Um, I think it was uh, I think people should go to jail for the way that, that it was handled. I think a lot of people made made a lot of money from it, um, and I don't know if that was the reason for it. I sure hope not because that's really messed up. Um, but in general, we all went through it together, and hard times. Um, uh, there are good things that come from them. And I do think that that it did expose some things that we've gotten better at and helped give people consciousness they didn't have before. And health and wellness is now a bigger focus. And so maybe the greater good will prevail. And, and that, you know, like a lot of things that you go through that are hard, there will be a silver lining um, uh, that will create incremental growth that couldn't have been created otherwise. But um, that's my that's my take. My yeah. two cents. Well, I think it's important for us to keep talking about it. not all the time, but as I said, I wouldn't mind so much if after the fact people put their hands up and said, you know what, there were all these lessons. Let's take these lessons and let's move forward. But there was literally, I remember there was a couple of weeks where the people that were the most tyrannical about this were like, oh, well, yeah, I guess we were wrong, but we don't want to, you know, let's just forget about it. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa time out. Forget about it. you shut the whole fucking planet down. And you closed everything that would actually make people healthier. And then you told them to stay at home, watch the Tiger King and get fast food and alcohol delivered to their house. No, we're not going to fucking forget that. And I agree with you completely because it to me what it did. And let's not forget this spanned two different two sides of the uh, political aisle. Both of them were in the the driving uh, seat this this time and when we were asked for people to lead and let's be you know clear leadership is simply bringing people together everyone was pigeonholed and divided families and friendships were torn apart because of this people were hugging with cling film on them for fuck's sake it was just insane so when you talk to the <laughs> oh god it, i mean it was just ridiculous so but when when you listen to the wellness professionals that I have on here, the nutritionists, the coaches, you know, all these people, the doctors, the psychologists, they all say the same thing. Yes, it was a real disease, but the healthier you are, the more chance you've got of recovering. So two years later, you should have a much healthier population because you learned the lessons of COVID. What's happened is we've got mentally worse, we've got fatter. And no one talks about this. That last wave of flu that kind of went through was still murdering tens of thousands of people. But CNN and Fox were like, oh, yeah, we're on to transgenders on beer now. So fuck it. You know, it just drives me crazy. And so this is why we have to have these conversations because we don't want to forget. Otherwise, it's like the, you know, the Germans going, yeah, let's forget about Hitler. You know, it's just 
no, that was a huge, let's never let that happen again. And we have to do the same with this. I'm very surprised that the media, that the, 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 the broad range of media still has the kind of influence that they have. I, I do think it's declining, thankfully. Um, they're not trustworthy anymore, and they, but they still have, and it tells me how unconscious, um, unfortunately, a lot of the population is. They just don't, you know, the, 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 they vote with their emotions related to the economy and the things that they get from politicians versus what's best holistically for their lives. It just tells me that they're making decisions based on on um, unconscious awareness of uh, unconscious or subconscious awareness levels of, of what's really happening. And, you know, I, I will also say that COVID created such a politically charged environment that we've never recovered from, um, you know, I'm not going to get into politics, then we'll go down a rabbit hole, but, um, and Trump said a lot of dumb shit in his presidency for sure. But one of the things that I remember him saying early in the pandemic was, we need to um, allow herd immunity to happen so that we can we can get through this and get healthy. Um, and I'm in the beginning, I wouldn't say that that was right until we really knew what we were dealing with. Once we knew what we were dealing with that kind of 25 percent the way through, that's what should have happened a lot faster. But again, they doubled down and said, no, everybody's got to stay home. You can't go to the beaches. It's too risky. And then, you know, now. But my point was going to be that the political polarization that was caused during COVID that really brought politicians into the light and allowed them to have a platform, um, that polarization is still driving. You know, I, I generally believe that if you look on a horizon, um, the middle section or even 60% of the middle section of the horizon, most people generally agree on things like in terms of politics, the idiots out on the right and on the left who have now learned that you can divide people through fear and push them out. Um, and more closely align them with your, you know, ideals and politics um, is a better way to make sure you win elections. And, you know, I didn't, I, I, I actually like Trump's policies, but thought, I think that Trump in, created the, this big separation. He started to create that divide between people. And now um, this current president is, is doing it even more, um, whether it be LGBTQ or racial issues or whatever they are, they're all now politically charged. And, Again, the people in the middle generally agree, like, I don't, you want to be gay? I don't care. Be gay. I do not care. Um, but I also don't want like somebody to, to force it on me as, as a, you need to be thinking about this. Like the things that matter to my family and my life are built on my, on my values and the things that I value. And no one needs to tell me what those are. Um, so anyway, stop, give me the mic, shut me up. No, no, uh, but it's brilliant. And I'll just, I'll just uh, kind of add on to that addiction kills gay men and straight women you know it kills black white purple obesity is probably killing more black people than anything else gang violence and supposedly white cops you know all these things yet where where is that conversation so again it's it's complete like you said it's triggering i don't care if my mermaid is black or white or Eastern European or Indian, she's a fictional character and it doesn't really factor into my day-to-day -day thing. The safety of my child in my schools certainly does. And all you fuckers do is argue about the right to bear arms. And 30 years later, we're still having our children executed in schools and having to do code red drills. You and I got to do fire drills, not super scary. The bell goes off, oh, I hated math anyway. I get to get out of my class for 20 minutes and stand outside. These children have to practice 
hiding in case one of their classmates walks in with a weapon and periodically executes them in front of them. And that is not a topic that you think is worthy of every single day discussing until we figure this out, how this is a multifaceted issue. Guns are a small part of it. I mean, you know, they're, they're say a small. Guns are a part of it, of course. Mental health, sleep deprivation, childhood trauma, sexual abuse, bullying. You, This is the maelstrom that causes this psychosis in this child. The side effects of psychiatric meds, another thing. Video games, you know, movies. Social media. Yeah, all these things. So if we're not having this holistic conversation, basically you're saying, if it's not about guns, I don't want to hear it. You know, so how many children are we supposed to lose? So this is the problem. And I think the root of my James Gearing, my perception is this. We keep having the same conversations because our system is so broken that every four years we have to choose from two fucking turds and we hear the same thing. (laughs) Oh, I've got to choose from the lesser of two evils. And we never go, wait a second, Uh, our system is broken. I can name 20 people that would be amazing presidential campaigns, but they have ethics and they're not millionaires, so they'll never make it. That's right. There you go. And it's, it's, I don't know what the answer is, James, our democracy is, you know, one of the greatest, I think, in, in, in terms of our constitution in the world. Um, but we've gotten ourselves into a, into a mess, putting people into office and we, we we're the ones voting them in. I don't, I don't understand. I mean, I'm not voting any of these idiots in, unfortunately I have to pick one of the, one of the, one of the two losers he talked about. Um, but, um, the lesser of the two evils, but why is it that we can't get you know, servant leaders who have, who have, you know, why aren't, why aren't generals who have proven to be amazing leaders serving in these roles? Why can't we have another uh, Eisenhower or, uh, you know, somebody who, 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 um, or even flip it away from the military and take it away from service and go over to people who have built amazing companies with ethics and morals and incredible economies Um helped a lot of people, helped a lot of their employees, helped a lot of communities. You know, Doug McMillan from Walmart, for example. If Doug McMillan from Walmart can't become president, I don't know what in the world this country is going to do and where we're going to go. He's not running for president, by the way. He should. Um, But he's not, his ethics and morals probably would never allow him to be the kind of politician he needs to be to become president because our system is set up in a way that is just, but by all measuring standards, he's the kind of guy that should be in that chair um, because he's, he, he knows how to run a country profitably. He knows how to invest in his people. He knows how to how to lead and make people feel inspired. He knows, you know, anyway, we'll move on. Yeah, no, but, it, but it's an important insight, especially from someone like yourself that's been in all these roles and, you know, as a successful business person as well. So thank you for that. We're talking about bringing solutions to problems. You COVID happens. Talk to me about taking the the kind of data and experiences from FitOps, and then what gave you the idea to create the university, and then tell us uh, what that involves now. So I, I was on the last of you know I I think post post the sale I was there two years and a month maybe, and you know going through COVID I was dealing with the the guys that own the company were running it, and um, again fear makes people make different decisions, and I think they 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 earn the right to make the decisions because they bought it. Um, and I was still running it. Um, my vision was still, you know, generally over the business, but I started to feel like I was losing control 
um, of my ability to influence where the brand was going and how we were acting based on short-term and potentially long-term, you know, transactional desires versus like, I wanted to build this big thing that impacted a ton of people's lives. And, um, but my head and heart were, were starting to drift over into my work, um, with veterans largely because I was a lot of veterans were suffering during that time. Um, and you know, if you'd asked me five years ago or even probably five years ago, uh, why, why did you want to start this or what perspective gave you to start this? I probably would have answered it differently because I hadn't really gone completely through the journey we talked about to get to the other side of, you know, this, this full self-love belief that those people who are, who have the, the strongest, um, value in themselves, love themselves can, can give to others in a way that's sustainable. Um, service members, uh, anybody who served in any capacity knows what it feels like to lever the power of that uniform into something good, um, to help people, to make them feel better, to make them feel safe. Um, and so, you know, I, I believe that, that the time when I was leaving the, leaving that business is going through another transition. Um, I started thinking about like what really mattered in my life while watching all those stories, um, those videos of outbreaks from, from students, when they leave, they record a story about themselves and what they've learned on their journey here. And, and, um, I just started hearing all these like tidbits and, um, and the first night, a, a lot of the same things we heard in the first night of those, that, that camp where I got up and told my story to, to 35 complete strangers. Um, the very first FitOps research camp was held in in Texas in a little Boy Scout camp with tiny beds uh, and big people, and they were they were men and women from prior service who I had some of them I had met, one I had served with, most of them I had never met, um, and we brought them together. And like service members do, they they gelled and bonded quickly. We started to see, you know, you know, we're we're attacking it from four domains: physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and values. Um, and they all have common, common language and ground in those areas. A lot of those areas, physicality obviously is, is the easiest one, but the intrinsic link between mental health, mental and emotional health and physical fitness is undeniable. There's thousands of clinical studies on it. Um, but that same link exists in the, the acquisition of knowledge to create more consciousness and the impl implementation of a value system to keep you on track in the areas that, you know, one, discovering your values and two, keeping you on track, living from them. Um, and so um, I, I guess the answer to your question is I was starting to fall out of love with, with building sports nutrition companies and starting to fall in love with, um, with helping people on the same journey I'd been through. Um, and so uh, my wife, who is Australian, by the way, um, uh, long live the King. Uh, she was not wanting to leave New York city, but New York had changed. Um, and, um, we tried LA for about six months and, um, you probably have a lot of LA listeners or Cali listeners on here. So I'm not gonna, not gonna dig into why I left that place, but, um, I, I had some similar challenges with, with LA that I started to see in New York and just, just wasn't my, wasn't, was that wasn't our place, but Arkansas, um, seemed really intuitive uh, for a couple that lived in New York City um, of international um, descent. And so uh, I had been coming to Arkansas for probably eight or nine years selling sports nutrition products to them. Um, and I'd gotten to know a few of the executives here and 
Um, and really what I saw was a community of, you know, centrists um, who are capitalists, you know, the Walton family are, they're capitalists. They've, 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 they're built the arguably the largest and most successful business in the world ever um, from a consumer products perspective, for sure. Um, on a, on a, from a retail perspective, for sure. Um, but the people themselves, the, the fabric of, of that family is the American, like what we want our people to be. Um, they're great people. They do amazing things for other people. They do it quietly, um, but they know how to do it and create outcomes at the same time that benefit all parties. Um, I think a lot of the problem with service members is they, they get out and they want to give and give and give and give, and they never give back to themselves. I believe that the best ecosystems are ones where you can succeed and that success allows you to serve others. And then they want to serve others and they'll be successful. And it creates a flywheel of opportunity for everybody. Um, and so to answer your question, literally FitOps was a research vehicle. Um, I I'm a capitalist. I believe in building economies, um, and doing good with the things that you do, uh, the things that you're given, um, I'm not an overly religious guy, but I believe in the idea of stewardship and 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 doing well um, for others when you do good yourself. And there's some luck in that. There's some um, some talent, uh, some grittiness. But in general, I think that that we all have a duty to help other people um, uh, be successful too. And you know that's what being servant leader is about. And so um, I decided to convince. I'm going to try to convince my wife to move to Arkansas with me. Um, to open up this school um, and also pour a lot of our money into it, um, you know, millions and millions of dollars into this. And uh, I started on that task about 18 months before I actually succeeded in it. Um, I got told, fuck no. I got told, you're out of your mind. I got told, you can move to Arkansas, but I'm not going to Arkansas. Um, because she just didn't really know what it was. Um, and we predominantly live from the same value system. She likes, she's a little bit more um, extroverted. I'm a little more introverted. I like a small, tight group of good friends around me, not a big group of people I don't trust and know. Um, uh, so we always differed that way. Um, and in Arkansas plays in my favor in that way and plays against, you know, what she cares about. Uh, but we, in the end, we got to a resolution, which was I'll give it a year. That allowed me to get down here, start to get the team built. Um, we had a big, big daunting construction project. We had to build $10 million of infrastructure in a year. Um, and uh, I wanted I wanted the first students to be on the ground veterans day of 2021. Um, and so uh, we did it. We moved, we moved here um, and we opened the doors on veterans day 2021. I had, um, uh, John Cena, who's donated to my foundation many times and a really, really good guy. Um, he was here and and the Eagles were flying above us. We have 200 bald eagles on our campus. Uh, I had a couple of generals, one active duty, one uh, retired four-star um, and a couple hundred people from the community and about 50 of our students that were on the ground training. And, and um, it was just, uh, yeah, it is a, a magical day of a lot of really, really hard work and by a lot of people, um, uh, where, where we actually got to see, they got to see the students here training. And, um, and since then we've, we've, um, I guess that's a year and a year and a half ago or so. Um, we've put another 400 through and, and, um, we anticipate by 2024, we will be on a run rate of a thousand a month. Um, 
And uh, so, you know, seeing 12 to 14,000 veterans a year who, who want to become coaches in some capacity. Um, and it doesn't mean you have to become a personal trainer or nutritionist. It's really about learning to, to, to lever the power of empathy and service that you have in your heart um, where, and whatever career you're going to go into, we teach you how to do that in that career. Um, specifically though, we teach, uh, personal training, vocation, accredited personal trainers, licensed health coaches, licensed nutritionists, um, and entrepreneurship will launch later this year. Well, firstly, I mean, that's, it's amazing to hear. And the reason I was leading up with the COVID thing before, and obviously we got sidetracked in some very important conversation, but <laughs> when you talk about supply and demand, we have a huge demand for health. We got 70% yeah. of the country that is obese or overweight. Um, we have a mental health crisis. So proactively, it's such an amazing kind of uh, career path to send people. Because one thing when we talk about transition that I've, I've noticed commonalities is that usually when someone struggled, they found themselves transitioning into, for example, finance where they're not feeling they're making the world better. I know as yeah. a firefighter and a paramedic and then as a coach myself, when I am on the rescue on the ambulance, you know, pumping on someone's chest or sticking the tube down their throat, that's very reactive. They've called me on their worst day. Now, then that that same, you know, the next day I go to the gym and I coach a session, I look at it as proactive. Okay, hopefully this will sow some seeds and this person will never see my ugly mug as the last thing when I'm, you know, sticking drugs down their, their veins. So I can see how that is not only a career path, but mentally they feel like they're carrying on the service that they had when they were in uniform. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Spot on. I mean, I, I guess if you're asking, did that thought come into my head? The first one came in, what is the, what is the career that would make, what is a career that would make the most sense for a transitioning service member? Um, uh, when, when getting out of the military, um, or out of eventually we'll open up fire and EMS and police here as well. Um, but what is the career that allows, uh, you to continue to serve that is healthy, um, that leverages the skills you have in leadership, physicality, um, empathy, rapport building, um, you know, all those are all, all those are skills you learn in the military, um, and it's healthy. And so, and the most important part, we haven't talked anything about this yet, 72% of veterans don't use their GI Bill benefits. That's, that is $120,000 education that you're like, nah, why is that? Because the majority of schools that are available through the GI Bill are four-year colleges or even two-year schools. And those schools are not, imagine door kick, kicking doors in for, for 15 years in your career. You're a, you're a tip of the spear gunslinger and you're, you're going to go sit in a classroom for four years around 18-year-olds fuck. No. Um, I mean, I get it. I get it's for somebody, but we're talking about enlisted conventional force military. Where do they go? They go back to the hometown they lived in. They go work for uncle Bob, probably on some sh like, you know, shit job. And they, they fill the, the void of lack of the ability to serve an impact with drinking, with hanging out, bad people, we, we talk about, you know, the background of these kids, socioeconomic disadvantage is a very easy place to recruit military um, candidates from kids from backgrounds of inner cities, kids from small rural towns where, where these kinds of, um, you know, abuses happen. Um, 
my theory is that a lot of us who were hurt as kids were called to serve because of that trauma. And so what, what are they going to go back to? So I, I wanted them to, I want them to have an opportunity to be able to thrive through a career. They can, they can earn a degree in, in less than a month. Um, they leave here skilled as a coach. So when I say coach, it means anybody in a position to change someone else's life. So how do you connect with other people as a leader? Um, and it could be on a training floor. It could be in an office. It doesn't matter. Um, and then if you want to be in the health and fitness space, you have an accredited personal training degree from us, um, from, the, from an accredited body. And you have a practical, you've, you've been here for 23 days and you've been training every single day. You've been doing role-playing, you've been to training, you've been writing in your blueprint, you've been writing in your journal, you've been, so there's all these things that allow us um, uh, to put a productive person who cares about serving others into their community and serve through holistic health and fitness, physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. Um, so anyway, that's why, uh, to get to your point or question about, did I think of this during COVID? Um, COVID just reinforced why it should be done. Okay, for people listening then, they can use the GI Bill for your program? They will be able to in the next six months. Um, if somebody wants to come through here, go to the website and, and apply, uh, university-hp.com, um, and you don't have to pay. We have foundations set up around it that will pay the tuition. Um, we will scale the organization through the GI Bill, and then that money, um, some of the profits that come from um, the education here will go to foundations like team red, white, and blue that are doing awesome community-based stuff. Have you had Mike Irwin on, by the way? I haven't. Yeah. I think we talked about it when we spoke over the phone. So we still need okay. to make that connection. Yeah. yeah. I'll make the connection. Um, organizations like team red, white, and blue, they're creating community events. Um, uh, our foundation, uh, which will provide entrepreneurship funding. My goal, James, in, in the next four years is to get the, um, the organization big enough that every person that comes through will be able to put a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars into a foundation per per person. Um, that foundation will aggregate those dollars and produce, you know, call it seven to ten million dollars a year in funds, and then launch an entrepreneurship program where someone could come here with a business idea, go through the entrepreneurship program, and say, "Here's my plan. Here's what I want to do. I just need the funding for it." My goal is to get to a place where we can provide the the capex and opex. Uh, OPEX for a year, CAPEX in total. So let's say you got out of the military, you want to open a gym. Um, it would probably take you four or five years at least to maybe longer, maybe you even couldn't do it if you had a family to save the money to open your own gym. If we're really going to help service members thrive after service, we need to actually put, not give them things, empower them to do what they do and serve and accelerate their careers, not to just make it better, but to, and not just to catch up to the people that, that were peers in high school, but to accelerate past them to get into a position to serve our communities in a healthy way. So my goal is to, in, within four years, you're getting out of the military. You want to be, you want to work in the health and fitness space. You come through one month of curriculum here, you become a coach, you go home for four or five months, put it to work. I'm definitely, I love the space. I want to own my own business. You come back for entrepreneurship one, which includes PL, balance sheet, branding, all that kind of stuff. While in that class, which probably going to be four to six weeks, you build your business plan and then you present it to a panel, a board, and 
the majority of people that get into that class would likely get funded. And imagine being able to say, I'm getting out of the military. I'm going to become a coach and I have my own business in a year. Right now, people would be like, yeah, right, dude. You're never going to be able to like, you're a E6 and you, you got four kids and you've been in service 20 years. No way. My goal is to be able to put them in a position to do that with no debt, a mentor. Um, imagine how much that pressure that would take off of a, of a transitioning service member and their families to put them in a position to do what they do and serve their communities. That's what I want to do. I love it. And it's kind of what you're talking about, the, you know, the, the branding that is the broken veteran with mental health problems. That's, you know, give a man a fish. They don't want donations. This is what I've always talked about. When we talk about mental health, it's not a fundraising thing. It's a community thing. It's a connection thing. And of course, there are ways that we can use money, for example, what you're talking about, to empower someone to have that purpose and then forge their own path. But it's the teacher man to fish that we need to start focusing on. Yeah, thousand percent. All of that stuff I just said, you, you could have just said, so you mean like, Instead of giving a man a fish, he's man a fish. I'm like, there you go. James. That's why you're. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, just one other area that I want to get some closing questions. But um, I had John Cena's stunt double on the show, Spencer, Spencer Thomas. And uh, uh-huh. I have been fortunate enough to have some, you know, some bigger celebrities on the show. Josh Brolin, who he himself, unbeknownst to most people, was spent three seasons volunteering as a wildland firefighter. Uh, John Travolta has been on the show. And when he did uh, Ladder 49, he donated a load of money to the local fire department here. So there are some phenomenal celebrities that not just because they were told to by their publicity manager, but actually from the heart are truly good people as well, because they just happen to be an actor. Um, talk to me about John because that is someone that I would love to get on the show one day, but I see over and over again, um, just seemingly a good human being that does a huge amount with his platform. Yeah, he's the best. Um, and yeah, and also doesn't want any credit. And often I think he's been recorded as making 600 or 700 wishes or something like to kit to kids. Um, the real number is probably more like 2000, um, but he just doesn't tell anybody. Uh, and so, you know, his schedule is insane from shooting movies, but in between when everybody else is relaxing, John's going to hospitals and meet with kids. And so incredible human. Um, I met John, uh, in maybe 2015 through a friend had breakfast with him, And, um, it was being set up as like, Hey, this is Matt. He's doing some cool things with, with, um, with this business and, and maybe you guys can work together, but he's got this really cool idea to, uh, do research with health and fitness and veterans. And I'm wanting you to meet. So I, I sit down at breakfast with them in California and, you know, John's a really intense dude. Like not when you get him away from everybody else and just, but like when you first meet him, he's a very serious, like get to the fucking point guy. And so we sit down at breakfast and I'm, you know, I'm like, Oh, it's John Cena. Cool. I don't care about celebrities necessarily at all. I didn't get like starstruck. And he leans across the table and kind of gets right in my face. He's like, what do you need from me? And I was like, whoa, bro, <laughs> back up. Um, and and I, 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 I was able to like, you know, turn the conversation and get, you know, and within probably an hour and a half, two hours, we were, we were laughing and joking and having a good time eating breakfast together. And, and, and we just struck up a friendship. <laughs> um, and um, when I, uh, a year later or so, um, when I launched uh, um, the foundation, he came to New York and um, spoke to a bunch of vets at my gym. Um, and 
I mean, he's been there every step of the way, honestly. Um, he's not involved in the university. Um, he just wants to be involved in philanthropic things. He's got plenty of things to do in his business that are his focuses. But um, anytime a vet needs something, John's John's there. Um, he's met a lot of vets through us. He mentors vets th- um, through us. And, and um, yeah, I mean, it's just his best friend, Johnny, is our head of um, – our head of um, uh, like our graduate support psychologist type dude. So he's got a mental health background. And when they leave here, the first week that you go through the program is called the foundations of health and performance. And it's all about your life and and where you're going to go in your life. Johnny leads that process for the first week. And then he leaves. And uh, the next two weeks are toggling between physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, Um, and then Johnny's at home during that three week period and he's on zooms, uh, talking to companies, working on getting, uh, vets placed support therapy, um, masterminds, all that kind of stuff. You should have Johnny on your show. Actually. He's a, he's an awesome guy. Sounds like he should. Absolutely. All right. Well, um, we're going to talk about some of the closing questions before I do the purpose blueprint. When do you think that will be out so people can start looking for it? Um, I would expect it to be published in the next eight months, I'd say. Okay. Brilliant. So we'll keep an eye out for that. Let me know when it comes out and obviously I'll share it and I'll add that to the the website when this is done. Awesome. Uh, Thank you. So then first of the closing questions, speaking of books, are there any books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. You know, I'm not a big reader. Everyone always thinks I would be because I'm, I'm, I'm a very practical learner um, of all things. I like to consume from people. Um, like I listen to podcasts, I that kind of stuff, but not, not even not even a lot of those. Um, um, I would say um, foundational books, which are like How to Win Friends and Influence People um, would be a book I'd recommend um, for a transitioning service member, especially because you know, you get out of the military, you have certain skills and knowledge. You go sit in a company where you have a skill and knowledge. Maybe a lot of people don't have, and you're like, Oh, he's wrong. I'm going to tell you how how I'm right. And that, that book's just a really short, good guide to like how not to stick your foot in it. Um, uh, I like, I like that Simon Sinek's books around find your why. Um, you know, I find myself rewriting my book all the time because I'm like, fuck, he already said that. Fuck. He already said that. Um, I don't want to steal his shit. Uh, but he's, he's got, He's got the why quite figured out and and he's um so I think he's he's uh, uh done some awesome stuff. Brene Brown's work in vulnerability is I'd say for people who are who are listening who think maybe I do have some stuff I haven't dealt with um and for the sake of my family at least and and hopefully yourself that you're willing to step into vulnerability. Um I'll tell I'll tell you it's easiest to step into it step away from your life and step into it wholly like we do here. Um, if you can go to, you know, a, a place like this, or if you're not interested in health and fitness as a part of that, um, there's some, some good, some good organizations, uh, out there that do like Hoffman, um, immersive kind of, um, self-discovery retreats. Um, but I think the, I think the population that we work with are, one, not big readers, um, uh, for whatever reason, I don't know, maybe it's all the manuals we had to read when we were in the military, but, um, for some reason, I just, I don't, I spend a lot of, Oh, I'm sorry. There's another book. A guy, a, a, a guy, I think it's pronounced how to find your, your purpose. 
It's a Japanese book, um, not written in Japanese, but it's written by a Japanese philosopher. Um, and it's all about understanding. Um, and there's case studies for them that you live longer if you live your life a purpose, uh, meaning like you will live longer. Um, and it's, it's like, there's a, been a study done on it. So Ikigai, Find Your Purpose is an incredible book. Um, that one is probably the one I would recommend. If someone's going to take something from recommendation from me, it's probably that one. Um, yeah, that that's about all I got. I've read four books, dude. <laughs> <laughs> no, good books though. And Simon, Simon Sinek's another one I need to try and reach out to again. Brené Brown, I've tried a couple of times, but I understand. Mike, 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 Irwin, Mike Irwin knows Brené Brown. Oh, okay. Brilliant. He's done a lot of stuff with her. Beautiful. Yeah. So maybe that, and then so that, that kind of leads me to one of my next questions. I'll, I'll skip to that. So, is there a person or are there people? I think we've already touched on a couple that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world. Can I send you a list versus answer now? Absolutely. That's the thing. A lot of people that know a lot of people. It's usually easier. Yeah, I want to think about like. I want to be thoughtful about it and not just good people, but perfect people for your audience. Uh, I'll send you a list. Beautiful. All right. Well then what about films or documentaries? Any of those that you love? Um, my brain goes 1 jillion miles an hour every day. Um, working on this and mentoring vets. And honestly, the TV I watch is like Yellowstone fucking, um, I can get hooked on some like aviation war shit. Um, uh, I like, I like like mindless TV, um, either stuff that makes me feel cause I'm kind of a feely guy. Um, like hero stuff, like Yellowstone's got a hero in it. You know, the, the guy's always trying to like, um, come to the rescue, uh, or mindless. When I write down shows, I fucking hate you write down housewives. Um, all the housewives, all those bitches can fuck off. Um, <laughs> what else? Uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't know why women like that shit. My wife, I walk in the house, my wife's watching it. She's like, I love it so much. I'm like, it sounds like a fucking train wreck. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like when I come home and you're yelling at me. That's what it sounds like. But I'm sitting here listening to it for like, she's like, no, it's entertaining. And I was like, I think it's entertaining because you all see a little bit of that in yourself and, and you get to see it in them. And you're like, oh my God. Like that's how, that's how us guys feel when you're yelling at us just like that, but they're not even yelling. They're just talking to each other. It sounds like it. Um, yeah, no, I don't have any more. I don't have any more. I'm out. That's the <laughs> first time I've, I've been told films that I will TV that I hate. And it's funny my wife, I love it a bit, but she watches a lot of toxic shit on Facebook, like people screaming at each other. And then also these fucking awful, like dramatized, um, like scenes where oh that you know the husband comes in and he's he's rude to his wife or he's racist but then this happens and then there's a takeaway like babe you don't need to watch a 10 minute video on don't be a dick that's really badly acted and written but she watches these things oh my god i think jay shetty was uh doing them as well early on in his career but they are just like oh like two seconds in i'm like you're watching one of those stupid fucking videos aren't you and she's like yeah but it's, it's, you know, the takeaway is don't be a bully. I don't, yeah, babe, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I digress. Um, all right. Well, then the very last question before we make sure uh, people know where to find you in the university, what do you do to decompress? Uh, good question. Um, work out. I, I work out, uh, you know, on Sunday morning, Saturday, Sunday mornings. I have two kids, three and five. So 
you know, I'm full on with that. Plus 24 seven, we have vets out here on the ground trainings. So I'm full on with that. Um, uh, you know, we have, when you come here, which I hope you do at some point, you'll see, we have, uh, ice baths and saunas and, um, uh, hyper ice, hyper ice chairs for recovery and compression boots. And, you know, I'm, I, my favorite thing is to, is to go to the gym, go to workout, go sit in the sauna, get in the ice bath, um, have a really good bacon, eggs, potatoes, fruit. Like, I don't know. I'm simple, man. I like, I like simple things. Um, I ride bikes a bit. There's a lot of big biking scene here in Bentonville. Um, we're the mountain biking capital of the world now or capital of the United States now, um, in terms of trails. Uh, and there's also like gravel riding and, and road riding. So I do that a bit. I don't like getting in the funny spandex pants, but I do it, uh, once in a while. Um, and then traveling. Uh, I love to travel with my wife and go to, and kids sometimes, but kids, kids, at least at their age may travel a little crazier. Uh, but I love to, I love to go, um, to Italy and France and, um, have wine and, and make fun of the French. It's great. <laughs> well, one thing I didn't hit on, I just like when we're on the decompression topic that I'm going to slide in there before we close up, you have this experience where you're sitting there in tears, half listening to a conversation, half watching a, a kind of slideshow of your life. What now have been some of the tools that have worked for you? I mean, there's such an amazing spectrum a gamut of things that people are a lot of, largely unaware of from psychedelics to emdr to canine therapy etc cetera, etc cetera. what are some of the tools that worked for you to process such a horrific trauma that was buried for so long yeah that's a great and it, it reminds me to ask you i think you said marcus capone has been on before yes he has yeah yeah um um for those of you who don't know marcus marcus is doing incredible research work um within the ibugain space um, which it helps. Um, I would say you want to understand my journey. It took, it took, it happened when I was eight. It took basically 30, little less than 30 years to come out, 25 years. Once it came out another 10 full on really intensive years of like understanding it. I believe had I pursued, um, plant medicine, at when I first started trying to get therapy to figure out what was going on before, you know, I, I, I was in therapy trying to figure this out when I was in my twenties, but I couldn't figure it out. I didn't like the life I was living. I didn't like feeling terror and rage inside and being nice on the outside. That's like a Jekyll and Hyde, which is what I think a lot of our vets feel, honestly. Um, uh, but I was talk therapy only works. It only works if you're, if the therapist is intuitive enough to ask the right questions, to get your subconscious, to let go and bring it into the conscience. And if you have a lot of things that you don't understand, talk therapy can take years to get it to the forefront, yet your wiring is still sabotaging those, sabotaging that entire time. And so I legitimately believe, and like in Marcus's case, hadn't Marcus um, done Ibogaine and just done therapy, I don't think he'd be alive today. Um, and nor thriving in his marriage. Um, so I think, you know, my message for folks out there who are struggling is consider some plant journey, start with ketamine, maybe start with, um, uh, an ayahuasca trip, a little bit less intense. I began is like, if ayahuasca is a Mazda, I began is like a Ferrari with like nitrous and a nuclear weapon in the back it's like it's like full 
full send deep into the wormhole. When you come out, like shit's going to be different. Um, ketamine is a little bit and, and MDMA, uh, which are both by the way, being have been and being researched within the VA, tons of clinical studies have proven that they expand consciousness and allow your ego to let go so that you can heal. Um, so that you can see things that you need to see so you can heal to land the plane. If I had done one of those plant plant medicines, um, or MDMA, uh, guided MDMA earlier on in my life, uh, when I was in my twenties, I'm glad I didn't because it created the, it created all this and we're helping a lot of people here. But if I had, I, I believe that my life would have been a little bit, a lot bit smoother and, and, uh, happy a lot earlier. Um, so I, I think it's worth exploring start small, um, unless you're extreme, like Marcus was Marcus needed to go do something extreme or he's going to die. Um, if you're just unhappy and struggling with your life and you can't figure out why there's just something that's missing and you don't know what it is, look at your purpose and figure out if that's something that you need to, to, to spend more time on. Like, am I living a life that has meaning that might just be all that it is that you're not. Um, if it's deeper than that, like, no, it's just something, I just don't feel happy. I feel very, very sad or angry. Um, then maybe go try a ketamine drip with a therapist to just talk you through some things. And I'll, I'll, I'll explain, I'll explain what I think is what happens when you do a journey. The ego is such a powerful part of who we all are and, and we all have one and the ego is, it wants to be protected. Um, if you take a psychedelic, um, or any kind of plant assisted medicine, it basically allows you to be a passenger through the windows inside of your body, uh, your cells, the cellular power is so much more, the subconscious power, cellular power is so much stronger than the conscious power. Um, conscious is the things you have access to. You can see subconscious is a hundred thousand times bigger. It has way more things in it. Like you just can't see it. And so I always describe it this way. When you're a little kid and you grab, grab a hot pan for the first time, you grab the hot pan and it burns you. And then you're like, ow, and you let go. The next time you touch a hot pan, the cells in your hand, remember what that hot pan felt like. And you don't even burn yourself. You touch it and go like that. Your reaction is so fast. That's not an intellectual reaction. That's a cellular reaction. The same exact thing happens when you get into a situation at work and somebody's being aggressive towards you. Your reaction is going to be based on your training um, and your experiences. So if your reaction is that in, in the instance of grabbing the pan, if your reaction is to punch somebody or to defend yourself or to tell your boss to fuck off and destroy your career, then you're not in control of yourself. You're reacting versus responding. Um, you got to get yourself in a place to be able to respond. And that means rewiring some things inside sometimes because they're, they're protected by the subconscious. So I guess the point is psychedelics and plant assisted medicine can help you get into those, into those cells faster and allow you to see things that you're, you would never be able to see hadn't you done the plant journey or the medicine because your ego would never let you see them. And it'll act, the perspective will allow you to heal and you'll come out like Marcus, like Marcus will tell you, life's not a bowl of cherries for me all the time. It's a normal life. Um, but I'm not trying to kill myself. I don't feel sad anymore. I'm, I love my wife and I'm thriving and I'm helping others and he's found his purpose. And so, um, yeah, down the rabbit hole again. 
Yeah, well, I mean, if we want to go down a rabbit hole further, we'll get into the whole drug prohibition and why our vets have to go overseas to get a lot of these treatments. But that's another hour conversation, so <laughs> we'll yeah, skip is, that. But part, part two, yeah, James. Part part two is you coming down here and seeing this and doing a podcast from here. You see, I just when we were talking, I've got this vision of I think what I need to do is do a little podcast road trip, and I'll take I'll bring yeah. my dog with me. And I'll just, you know, go from place to place and do part twos with people because I keep saying, yeah, I'll come visit this facility. I'll come visit this gym, whatever. I think that would be a really cool thing to do, you know, so I'll figure out when that will work. And uh, I would love John to do Cena that. Will, John Cena will likely be here for Veterans Day. So maybe that's your in for uh, your podcast. There we go. There we go. He's going to be excited yeah. to see the man behind the Behind the Shield podcast. You, should, you, <laughs> could, you, could, you could bring your uh, your. Uh, what you call it? Um, your his stunt double. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, Spencer's there. Yeah, he's an amazing guy. Um, yeah, but I mean, as far as that, I had a guy, Dr. Ben Sessa, who's a professor in Bristol near where I grew up in England, and they're doing they're having great success. You know, they do the MDMA led therapy. It's only three sessions, and you're not you don't leave with MDMA. You leave, and then it just keeps working better and better and better. So, just to be able to unlock those those you know, dark places. And I had that myself. I was in a house fire when I was four, wrote my book during COVID. And during my COVID experience, I'm like, oh, shit, I never, I totally forgot about that. I almost died when I was four. It had been just locked in there. And it, I don't think it was, in my case, a negative because I became a firefighter. So it wasn't like it's... I was going to say, and then you became a firefighter. Yeah, exactly. But, but it was the, the other. that caused and the disparity that you felt it for, which you won't remember now, might be why you wanted to serve as a firefighter. So other people who felt the disparity you felt in the fire, they don't feel that. Exactly. Because you're, you're a firefighter. I'm almost certain of that, you know? So, but I, but even, even though it was a positive, it wasn't even a negative. It was still, that door was closed. So this is what I think is so powerful. Um, I had Catherine Walker on. She's got, um, she was a, a nurse anesthetist. I think I've got that right. Um, and so in the anesthesia world, and she realized that ketamine was having such great, impact on people with mental health issues that she changed and now she has clinics so people look for ke walker they can find places in the states that you can access very easily um so I, eventually that's going to be on this campus i just you know it we get ketamine is legal in arkansas now um i'm close to the governor and i'm working on a lot of things with her to try to bring we want to make arkansas the center of gravity for veterans and service members in our country and that's one of the levers I'm asking her to like look at is meet with Marcus and and how do we figure out how to make it legal in our state for, to have these plant treatments done here. Um, so the federal government's got to do something about it um, as well, but we'll see. Brilliant. Maybe I need to connect you with Katie then because uh, maybe this, she, she can bring yeah, what she's I, already doing. I was going to say anybody that you think would be like strategic or synergistic or anybody that you talk to needs support help um start start connecting don't even have to ask just make connections beautiful all right well that per puts me perfectly in the last one so for people listening just remind us again of the website and then where are the other places that people can find you or the uh, university online yeah so the website address is www.university-hp.com uh, if you're a service member or a veteran who are interested in coming through the program, um, either health coaching or personal training, uh, or just getting a, a better grasp on how to serve uh, through your gifts, uh, hit register. We'll get you into the queue. One of our counselors will call you, go through uh, a little a little Zoom interview, and then 
if um, you're accepted, we will have a, we'll send you to a foundation to get funded to come. Uh, everybody who wants to come here will get here. Um, meaning like we will find funds um, for you. Um, and then um, eventually GI Bill will be in place and we won't have to worry about any of that anymore. Uh, if you're a company um, brand interested in like, you know, being a part of what we do, we have an incredible uh, facility here. Uh, this facility was built by BeaverFit, actually, which is a, a defense contractor in the health and fitness space. Um, they donated almost this entire facility to our program, um, which is a 20,000 square foot indoor turf training center with, you know, hyper ice recovery center in it. It's, it's in, in classrooms. It's incredible. Um, yeah. So we're, we're uh, there's, there's on the website, there's all kinds of buttons you can push to find us. And then uh, we're on social media, university underscore HP. Um, I'm, I'm somewhere on there. I don't know. I think mine's Matt underscore Hesse, H E S S E. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm everywhere. I'm, I'm, I'm digitally, uh, I'm, I'm omni digital. Well, Matt, I just want to say thank you so much. It's been an amazing conversation. Uh, obviously we kind of hit that childhood trauma area pretty hard, but I mean, that was when the door opened and I like that organic conversation that we had, but you know, you being so vulnerable and courageous with your own story and then coming from, you know, a, a business entre entrepreneurial space and then just like, uh, John Cena using that platform and actually doing amazing things with it. It's been an incredible, you know, story that we've heard. So I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. My great pleasure. You're an easy guy to talk to. I appreciate you all the work that you're doing as well. <laughs>